the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, for the hearts of thy faithful, kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they should be created. Now Let us pray. God, do this to strike the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant by the gift of the same spirit that we always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Sorrowful and Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. Saint Michael, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Good, so welcome once again. I didn't scare too many of you away, it looks like, anyway. So we saw yesterday that the essential element in raising a child, that which is essential to the health, healthy development of the child, is love, true love for the child. In other words, not simply what makes me feel good, certainly, but also not necessarily what makes him feel good. A lot of times we think of love as consolation. Right, to console him, to comfort him, to prevent suffering to him. Right? And that's, that's not what we're after here. Right? True love, as we said yesterday, is viral. Right? The scripture says, love is strong as death. Right? It's an absolute. It's, it's something where I see what is best for that child, and I will pay the price for that. And what I see is not just a superficial external, right, that might, you know, what makes him feel better right now or makes me feel better right now or makes him look better to the world right now. No, it's a much longer term vision. It's a much more, it's a vision that's much more profound, right? It's the vision of Catholic manhood or Catholic womanhood in all its ampler and nobility. It's a vision of a soul that's striving for God and reaching for God, attaining God ultimately. Right, so, so love is essential, we said, to the child reaching that goal that we have for him in this world and then in the next world as well. And we said it's sort of like sunlight for a plant. Without it, the plant is going to get all, the plant of the soul is going to get all twisted up and yellow and sickly and vulnerable to all kinds of diseases and, and ultimately die. Right, so what we need to see today in our three conferences, actually, is discipline, which is a form of love. It's something which is hard for many a parent to, to grasp, even though they might hear a little bit. It's, it's more difficult down here. Right? We have a certain fear, or many a parent has a certain fear, of discipline. Partly that might come from our background. Partly that might come from our emotions. Right? We're concerned we might harm the child. We're concerned we might harm the re our relationship with the child. In fact, the contrary is true. It's lack of discipline that will harm our children. To realize that, we have to step back. We have to look at humanity where it's really at. We have to look at humanity since the fall. Your little child, when he comes into the world, he's baptized, he becomes a child of God. Right? And the sin of Adam, original sin, 
the reality of original sin, it's washed away. But certain effects remain. There's an inclination in the child to seek what is pleasurable, what is easy, and to avoid what causes struggle, what is hard, or what causes pain. The passions in the child, not just the passion of love, but hatred, the flip side of the coin of love, love what is good, hate what is evil, right? sadness, fear, courage, anger, all of these are passions. They have become, by the reality of original sin, they have become unruly. In other words, these things that were meant to help him attain good and flee evil, now sometimes can be counterproductive. Right? And and help make it more difficult now to attain the good, and more easy to fall into the evil. The will has been weakened in the pursuit of what is good. It's obstinate or tends to be in its own whims, and the mind is darkened. It mistakes what its true good is. You tell a little child, or he starts, he's going to learn to play the piano. In the first three weeks, it's great fun. And then it's like, this isn't new anymore. I don't want to. I want to go play with my friends. No, you're going to play the piano. Right? And he doesn't see the good that's before him. He sees only, I want to play with my friends. He doesn't think ahead, you know, three years from now when I'm a great piano player, I will be so happy that I learned this instrument. He doesn't see that. He doesn't see the true good. The mind is darkened. And it's true. And that example is true in countless examples. We're easily mistaken as to the true good. This reality of original sin that causes all these effects in the soul, they're of critical importance when we raise a child. Because our little children, who are so innocent, like the little one there, like a beautiful little child, right? so innocent, so wonderful before God, it's a miracle before God, but within that child, right, there are weaknesses already. That child has a will, but that will tends to think only of self and what will please it. That child has passions. And those passions, he cannot control. He can't control his own will. And we see it like in a little two-year-old, little three-year-old, right? He wants a glass of milk or he wants a soda, right? And he asks for it and you say no, and it's the end of the world. You would think it was the end of the world. Right? Because all he sees is the immediate good that he desired. He sees nothing else. He doesn't see a bigger picture. He doesn't see that that's a very small thing. He doesn't see that he can have that drink in 20 minutes when he's at table. He doesn't see any of that. And he can't control because his mind doesn't see reality. He's just a baby. The will sees only what the immediate pleasure is or the immediate consolation is. And the passions just go for whatever pleases them. Plato described the human soul as a chariot. You think of like in Ben-Hur, right? The, uh, Ben-Hur's there in his chariot riding those great, magnificent horses. Plato says the horses are, they're, they're the passions. They're not going anywhere without horses. The chariot's just going to sit there. Passions are not an evil thing in themselves. But boy, do you need somebody in that chariot who can control them, who can guide them, who knows where he's got to get to, who knows what he's trying to attain, 
and who has a master's hand and a master's command. And you know what? The little child, it's not there at all. Those wild horses are operating on instinct. Who's going to hold the reins? You. Mom, Dad. How are you going to teach him to hold the reins himself? By discipline. As you form the child in discipline, little by little, he becomes capable of holding the reins himself, seeing the goal he's trying to attain, and having the, the self-mastery to keep his horses on track, running hard, but towards the proper goal, so that he can win the crown of victory in this life, but ultimately in heaven. In our world, the reality of original sin is denied. There's a sort of the, the myth of the noble savage, right, which says that, that's Rousseau, of course, that, that man, if he's left in himself and left to himself without bad influence from society, man is good and noble. And so, anything which is a natural instinct or desire is something good. Whatever he feels, whatever he desires, whatever he enjoys, it's always good. To be happy, he must be himself. In other words, he must follow those inclinations. He must live in accordance with those feelings and desires and those enjoyments. And that no one has a right to deny him what is natural to him, because that is a good thing, those natural things. And they're necessary for his happiness and so anything that gets in the way of that is a tyranny. And that's, that's Rousseau. That's the myth of the noble savage. Right? If you think about it, it's a contradiction in terms. How can there be a noble savage? And yet, that's, what, that's the bill of goods that's been sold to the whole world today. Right? And so in, in a modern school, for example... You basically, and even in a workplace, you basically avoid telling anyone that they have to do anything. My dad was working in quality control at one point for, for Cummins Engine, and he was put in charge of a team making truck engines. He hated it because he wasn't allowed to tell anybody what to do. He was only allowed to suggest that it might be a good idea if we did this because of this. They, so they put him in a position of authority and then said, but you have no authority. Or you do, sort of. You're responsible, but you're not able to command. He said, I, 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 put me back on the line. Don't put me in charge of a ship and tell me I have no right to command the soldiers or command the sailors. It's impossible. And yet that's, that's our world. That's our world. And it's, it's amazing to a certain extent, but it makes sense to a certain extent also because we live in this world. We're swimming in this world every day. We bought into that myth, at least in part. There's a part of us that associates discipline with tyranny. With a discipline as something opposed to love. When we exercise authority, we tend to exercise it with a certain reluctance and sometimes with a sense of guilt. When the contrary ought to be the case. No discipline. If you give your child no discipline, that's tyranny. 
because he's never going to be able to command himself. Talk to, to a young man or a young woman who's enslaved to impurity, enslaved to alcohol, enslaved to drugs, even enslaved to his emotional ups and downs. That's tyranny. That's misery. That's destructive. And that comes from no discipline. When we, if we give a child no discipline in his upbringing, it's a guarantee not of happiness, but of unhappiness. If he always has, if we give him whatever he wants, that's a lie. Because we know as adults that no matter how much we want it, we can't always have it. In this life, no one can have everything he wants whenever he wants it, as he wants it. And we also know that if someone is unable to deny himself something, to say no to himself, he's going to destroy his soul and his life. Look at a man, for example, who's, who's addicted to alcohol. You know, he's a, he's a father of a family. But he's got to have his drink. He'll sacrifice his job. He'll sacrifice his spouse. He'll sacrifice his children. Because, not because he doesn't have a certain feeling towards them, but because his will is more attached to the drink, more enslaved to the drink than it is attached to them. He'll sacrifice them. When we raise our children... We always have to look ahead, and this is, this is a major point. We always have to say, what must he be? What world will he face? What will he be in life? He'll be a dad, and I need to prepare him to be a father. And what I do today, I have to have in mind that he's got to be a father someday. He's got to hold down a job someday. He's got to sacrifice himself for a family someday. He's got to put others before himself someday. Others need to be able to rely on him someday. And without that reliance, they will fall. They will, they will perish, perhaps. When you look at your boy, you say, Oh, he's going to be a father. Father of the family. What about father of a parish who becomes a priest? The responsibility is so much greater. What of a mother, a young girl? She must be a mother someday. With all that that entails, and you mothers know, the life of sacrifice, the beautiful life, but the difficulty that that life entails at times, the generosity, the self-sacrifice, the love. Always look ahead and say, okay, he's going to have to be this someday, or she's going to have to be this someday. This is going to be their role. I need to prepare them for that. A lot of times, we, of course, in the background is that, okay, they're going to be an adult someday and they need to be ready. But it's sort of like, I just take care of today, and tomorrow will take care of itself. But it's not true as our world proves so <clears throat> dramatically and so tragically at times. Right? A little child with original sin and those flaws that are there, 
It's sort of like, and understand it correctly, it's sort of like the ugly duckling that must evolve into the swan, but cannot simply do it the way an ugly duckling does. Our task as parents and educators is to help the child become that swan with God's grace and our efforts. So we want to instill in our children discipline. We want to form our children in discipline. What is discipline? We immediately think punishment. I mean, it's not true. Punishment is a penalty that's inflicted on an offender as a retribution. He did something wrong, and he must rectify that wrong by paying a penalty. That's punishment. Discipline, right? think of the root word, disciple, follower. Right? Discipline is a training which corrects and molds and strengthens and perfects so that the child will follow the ideal of Christ, the Christian ideal. So discipline is a kind of learning. A disciple is one who learns. And it's necessary from very early in life, even your little one there, which is gone. Oh, there Yes, right? right? Already he's learning, and he or she? He, right? So he's learning already, every day. Every moment of every day, except right now when he's sleeping. Right? He is learning. From day one, a child is learning. Right? The difficulty is that from day one, his will is at full strength. He knows when he's hungry. And he lets you know that he knows. And the only way that he can let you know, which is to make noise. Right? He's limited to that. Right? His will is at full strength. His intellect is not. His intellect is only gradually developing strength. It will only sort of wake up when he reaches what, reaches what we call the use of reason. Now all of a sudden, it's not just instinct and what pleases or what doesn't please that he acts according to, but now he can, he can see and understand. And it's a gradual process. I, I don't think it's fair to say that reach age reasons, light switch, boom, day before, no, day after, yes. It's not true. Little by little, the intellect begins to awaken and develop a certain strength and ability to see an ability to reason. It's amazing how we see parents try to reason with a little child who has no mind to reason with. I see it all the time on the planes. Right? All the time. Right? You've got a little two-year-old, a little three-year-old, of course, okay, it's cramped, and the child might be scared, or the child might want to get out of that cramped seat and get up and run, but he doesn't understand the whole scenario, and so he's... <laughs> or he doesn't want to sit with his seatbelt on, or whatever it is, and you see a parent sit there and try to explain to him, right? and he's incapable of understanding, he just knows what he wants. There's a funny story about Father Ascari. I don't think you'll mind if I tell you. I don't know if you know Father Ascari here. He's a wonderful priest, a wonderful priest, a, a brilliant teacher at the seminary, um, and just, just a wonderful man. 
he, uh, he doesn't like traveling much. It's hard for him. He's a big man, and he's, he's a little older now, and his health isn't very good, so it, it's a difficulty for him. But he'll still do it for, for a noble cause, frankly. He just came to Kansas City to, to speak at the, at the recent Angeles Press Conference. He gave a conference there. So he'll, he'll make the effort, but it's hard for him. Anyway, once he was on a plane, <clears throat> and the usual difficulties of traveling in a plane, which are much worse today, as some of you know. And the child, there was a child sitting behind him. And the child was rather rambunctious and hanging on the seat, kicking the seat, just scrooching around and not having any idea that there was any problem. And the mother, I don't know what this was, a three-year-old child, maybe, right? And the mom kept saying to the child, now sit down, now be quiet now. Now don't hang on the man's seat. That's, there's a nice man there. You don't want to make the nice man unhappy. Right? And the child's kicking again, right? Kicking the seat. Don't kick the seat, Johnny. Right? That, that will... Uh-oh. <laughs> Somebody's got a Johnny. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> All right, so don't kick the seat. All right, that will disturb the nice man. Right? And so the child doesn't pay any attention to any of this. And finally, Father Scarra says, okay, that's enough. Now, if you know Father Scarra, right, he can do anything with his face that he wants. He can <laughs> pout, he can threaten, he can... Anyway, he turned around, he was a big man, and he looked at the child over the seat, and he said, if you don't stop, I am going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> And he drew his finger across his neck. <laughs> and, and of course the mother goes, <gasps> right? And the child goes, <laughs> and for the rest of the thing, <laughs> all he had to do was make clear that he meant what he said. And of course he didn't mean it that way, but the child got the message, okay, time to settle down and enjoy the plane ride. Right? And that's it. Is that uh, that's a normal bell? Ah, uh, okay. All right, that's good time. All right, all right. So, but there, see, Father understood, and he's the one that told this story to the seminarians when he was trying to make the point, I believe, of you can't reason with someone who doesn't have the 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 tool yet to reason with. That's insane. That's insanity. And yet, you'll probably catch yourself doing it sometimes. <laughs> You probably catch yourself doing it sometimes. The small child, the point being, the small child without yet the use of reason cannot control his will. You have to set boundaries that he will respect. And that is what discipline is. Discipline is to set boundaries, to set limits for that young will that's very much alive and very strong at times, and yet doesn't know what it really wants, doesn't at all know what's really good for it. The child can know, for example, that he wants to reach that pan on the stove. He can't know that that red pan is going to burn his hand. Right? He just knows what he wants. So we need to, and a parent needs to, set boundaries for the young will. And the child, in fact, wants the parent to do that because he wants to know that there are limits to his world. 
and that someone's in command in his world because he realizes very well it's a big world. Rare is the child that will wander out of a house and go down the street and not get scared all of a sudden and say, Whoa, this is a big world. There are no boundaries. And he knows that he can't control things. He needs to know there are limits and he needs to know that his parents are in control of his world. He doesn't consciously think these things, but it's the natural reality in the child. And so he will naturally submit to authority, provided it proves itself worthy. And that's an interesting paradox. The child wants guardrails, but he's always going to test the guardrails. But think about it. It makes sense. He wants to know if the guardrails are going to hold. If they're going to hold their real boundaries, their real limits, that make his world up to his size, so to speak. But he's going to... I remember once when I was a priest, a young priest, um, in one of my first parishes, and I was doing Eucharistic Crusade Conference for the little kids. And there was a family that had just moved to the parish. Um, and so we did this every month. And the kids knew the routine very well. And we went into a conference room and we talked about things. And then we did some little games or whatever. The usual thing. Anyway, there was a new family here. And they had a, a, a boy that was maybe, I don't know, six years old at the time. Probably six, maybe five. Right? And so I said to them, well, would, would your son like to go? I'm not going to give his name here. Let's call him Johnny again. Right? <laughs> would Johnny like to come to the Eucharistic Crusade Conference? And they said, sure. Johnny, would you like to go? I don't remember if they asked him or they just said, sure, but we'll put him in there. Right? So they did. Anyway, I started with a story. And I was probably, well, we said a short prayer, and then I was, I don't know, maybe a minute and a half into the story. And little Johnny was sitting against the wall with his head against the wall, and he goes, <laughs> minute and a half. And all the other kids are gone. <laughs> and I said, Johnny, stop it right now. Silence. Anymore, and you're out in the hall. Back with mom and dad. And then back to the story. And there was no more snoring. First thing he did, not knowing me, first thing he did is test the boundaries. Within a minute and a half, he tested those boundaries. I never had a problem with a child again. He's a fine young man, though. <laughs> not because of that, but you understand what I'm saying. Right? It's normal that the child will wants to be led by his parents and those responsible for him, but he's going to insist that they earn the right to lead him. In other words, he's going to test to see whether they're up to the task. They're going to challenge his authority. And they'll do it, a child will do it, even at a very young age. Even at one year's, one year's age, one year old or two years old, Two-year-olds, certainly. I mean, the two-year-olds are famous for that. Right? They're famous for that. 
Right? They're, they're going to challenge authority. And it's not a sinful thing. It's an instinctive thing. Right? It's willful, but it's not sinful because there's no knowledge. They're just instinctively testing the boundaries. Right? And they're going to struggle sometimes. They're not going to like this little Johnny there. He submitted immediately, and that was the end of it. Some child, I mean, they'll keep pounding. Right? There would have been three or four snores. I think of another story. Um, I had explained this very principle to, to my parents in, in one of my parishes. And they had a little two-year-old, and she was a bundle. Just a cutie, and what a fiery temperament. Right? And, and, you know, they were like, oh, Father, but when she goes off, she just goes off, and she won't stop. I said, you've got to win that struggle. You've got to show that you are in command, and don't let her get to you. If you've asked something, you maintain the line, and if she's going to scream, she's going to scream. Well, shortly after we had this conversation, we had a parish picnic. Right? And all of a sudden, this little child, right, let's call her Mary. Right? Her name was not Mary, right? But let's call her Mary. Little Mary went to mom and she wanted something. And I don't know what it was. All I know is that I was playing volleyball with the parishioners all of a sudden, and it was that siren sound that we just heard. <laughs> and that siren sound continued just like it just did. That's a perfect demo, right? It's a perfect demo. And it wouldn't stop. And I went over. I said, what's the problem? Oh, Mary wanted this, and, and she can't have any more. And so we told her no. I said, oh, okay. And what they had done is they set Mary in the, in the chair in the corner of the picnic pavilion, and they said, you sit there until you're done crying. Do you know how long she cried? Not cried. Wailed like that siren with all the parishioners around. It was over 20 minutes. God blessed those parents, and they didn't bend. They didn't scream, and they didn't, weren't, oh, they probably were embarrassed, but they didn't bend, and they just said, Mary, when you step, start crying, you can go play. Well, finally, she got the message. They won the battle. They proved that the boundary that they had drawn, for a good reason, was a solid boundary. Right? A solid boundary. And that's what every parent must do. There's a necessity here of a great firmness, tempered, of course, by love. We are not drawing the boundary because we want to do what we want to do and we don't want them to do what they want to do. Right? We are not drawing the boundary because we don't like seeing them do what they enjoy doing. Right? We are drawing the boundary because they must be guided and checked in their willfulness as a young child. But that boundary which we draw out of love for him, the way we, we maintain it is tempered by that love. In other words, we're not harsh, we're not beating on them, we're not screaming at them. Right? There's a balance between the two. There's the firmness tempered by love. I remember a sermon that was given by Father Kenneth Dean, one of our priests, a very good priest. And he was giving a sermon on discipline. And he, he said, he was, he's a very understated man, very quiet. And he just said, you know, little ones must know two things, and just two things. They must know who's in charge. And they must know that they're loved. And the two always go together. 
And so true discipline is never a question of being harsh or unkind. In fact, it's a question of forbidding weakness to oneself as a parent. Those parents of that little two-year-old, Mary, right? they certainly probably didn't see her, like to see her crying, certainly didn't like to be embarrassed in front of everybody, and at the same time, they, they would not give in for the sake of their child. For the sake of their child. Their strength and love. Because the child, in fact, when he challenges you, he's, he's asking the question, what happens if I don't obey? What happens if I don't submit? And the reality of the matter is, if his challenge is not met, then he will not respect the one over him. A child is very capable of despising an authority. Not cognitively, but really, he has no respect. And you see it many times in an airport. You know, I'll see a parent with a little child, and it's absolutely clear. That child, he doesn't care one bit what mom says. He does that. It's one ear and out the other. Ear. It do, he doesn't even pause. Uh, he, he, not even a hesitation. Johnny, come here. Johnny, come here. Mackenzie doesn't hear, or or even worse, will look right at her and turn and go the other way. No respect whatsoever. The parent has not answered the challenge. And the sad fact of everyday family life today, in a lot of families, is the children scorn their parents. You certainly it comes out when they're teenagers, but even before. And it's not from lack of love in the sense of kindness and so on. It's from the, from the lack of discipline. The reality of many a family today is the parents serve their children, even in very good families. The child wants a drink. Mom gets up immediately and goes and gets the drink. Child wants to go to sleep. He sleeps whenever he wants, wherever he wants. He wants to, to eat. He wants to drink. He wants to play. Whatever he wants to do immediately, everyone's at service so he can do it. Right. Evil and Wall visited uh, the United States. Well, obviously, that was back in the, the earlier part of the, the 20th century. Right? And he, he left and he said this, America is the place where parents obey their children. That was the comment that he made. Right. So a parent who obeys his children, right, has admitted defeat with them, and he he's, he's told his children, when he doesn't maintain those boundary lines, he's told his children there's nothing he can do with them. There's nothing he can give them. So, how do we teach discipline? How do we instill discipline? in our children. Firstly, a preliminary point. Most kids today, most adults today as well, but most kids today do not believe in obedience. They might do what they're told to do, but they don't believe in obedience. 
Obedience is to sacrifice one's own will, what one is inclined to do, because one is asked by someone in authority to do otherwise. And that person in authority, ultimately, and a little child won't understand this, but an older child should, that one in a position of authority has that authority from God. So we do what we're asked to do. We'll sacrifice our own will to do what we're asked to do because ultimately it's God who's asking us to do it. And that's why an authority figure who would command us to do something which is against God's will, we don't obey. Because that's not true obedience. Well, today, most kids, when they obey, if they obey, is not with that in mind or any kind of an understanding like that. Most kids today look at authority in one of two ways. Anyone who's in a position of authority is either a tyrant or is a buddy. The tyrant... They'll obey because they have no, tr- no choice. If I don't do it, bam. And I know it. Well, I have no choice, so I'll do it. Right? The buddy, I obey him because I like him. He's nice. He's my friend. So I'll obey him. In neither case do we have true authority or a sense of true authority. Now, this comes in part, in large part, from the revolutionary principles that have been hammered into all of us from the time that we were children. There's no question about that, and long before. Revolutionary principles which say that authority is an evil because an authority constrains and doesn't let me do what I'm inclined to do when I have a right to do what I'm inclined to do because it will make me happy. And it's naturally good that I will do what is good for me. Back to the philosophy that we saw before. And this is everywhere. Everywhere, in the music, the movies, the, everywhere. Right? This coloring of authority as a tyranny. I remember growing up as a teenager, you know, we were, at that point, we were not in tradition. We were basically conservative Catholics. And I was into music that wasn't the greatest music. And there was a song that was, that was very popular at the time. Right. And I remember the lyrics of that song of this day, like we all do remember the music we used to listen to. And I remember why I liked that song. Right. The song was, I'll do what I want to anyway. I'll do what I want, and I'll do it in my own time. That was the principal line of the, of the song. Right. <clears throat> you know, strong acoustics and you know the synthesizers and everything that was popular at that time. And that was it. I'll do what I want to anyway. I'll do what I want, and I'll do it in my own time. That kind of a message is being pounded on even our children in the measure that they're exposed to, and inevitably they will be exposed to a certain extent, and must be, to our world. So there's that aspect that difficult to control. We must control to a certain extent, and we will see that later, right? But there's also the reason why kids either look at authority figures as tyrants or buddies is because the authority figures themselves don't believe in their authority. We'll come back to that. How then are we going to keep, how are we going to instill discipline? How are we going to maintain discipline 
for my child in discipline. Some rules. First rule. And that is about rules. Make sure that rules are Go few first. They are few in number, clearly explained, and reasonable. Make sure that the rules, that those boundaries that you draw for your child, that they are relatively few, that they are clearly explained. They know exactly where that line is, and that they're reasonable. They need to be relatively few, because when we start multiplying rules about everything, the picture gets very complicated, and the picture gets very blurred. We know, as parents and educators, that not all rules are created equally. There are rules that are incredibly important, and then there are those that are just a little thing. Like you wipe your seat, you wipe your feet when you come in the house, or you take your shoes off when you come in the house. It's not that we don't enforce the little rule, but you wipe your feet when you come in the house is a little bit different than you don't get on the internet ever without dad there. Those two rules are not created equally. When we have a ton of rules, it all becomes a big balled up mess, or at least blurred to the extent we don't know where the big ones are and where the little ones are. Okay. There was a famous, uh, it's Joe Torre, right, the, uh, the famous New York Yankees manager, now no longer with them. In fact, I don't even know if he's with the Dodgers anymore. But he was, he's obviously a very good manager, won a number of world champions and so on, championships and so on. He was very famous for having only three rules for his players. I, I only remember two of them off the top of my head. One was, you will give everything that you have on the field. Two was, you will be on time for every meeting and every game and anything that's team-oriented. And I don't remember the third one. But he was a very effective manager because he established his authority by these few rules and he would not bend on them, but he didn't draw all kinds of little rules for them. You do these three things, we're going to be fine. And we're going to win. So he, by maintaining those rules, he established his authority so he could say, no, we're not doing that. Because of this, his authority was established by those three rules. He didn't have to kick and stream, and he didn't have to make it an official rule. Whenever there was some little thing that came up, his authority was established. Can you imagine how difficult that must be in today's world with the the prima donna ballplayers? But he knew how to command men. Few in number, clearly explained. It makes sense, right? If a boundary is not clear, how can you blame a child for going over it? If a boundary is not clear, he's not even going to see it. It's not going to occur to him. So we need to, if you draw a line, you need to make sure that he knows the line is there and he understands what that line entails. And then the last one, very important. The rule must be reasonable. In other words, in accordance with reason. It makes sense. If you tell your boy to wear pink cleats on the football field, I am your father. You will wear pink cleats. Well, that's not a reasonable, obviously an exaggerated example, right? But it's that's a rule 
that you could very well say, right? But it's not a reasonable rule. When you make a rule, if a parent makes a rule that's not reasonable, he sends a message that authority is about doing what one wants to please oneself. It's caprice. And because I'm in authority, I can do what I want. And you will obey because I'm the stronger one and I'm in the position of authority. You send that message about authority and you send a message that obedience is simply I must submit because he's in the stronger position. It forms either rebels or conformists. Rebels, because I'm not going to do stupid things that don't make sense. And so rebel against authority, which is simply doing what it pleases itself and imposing rules that make no sense. Right? Or it makes conformists. You know, right now I'll do what mom asks. And when mom's not there, I'll do what I want. In neither case has there been true formation. Few right. in number, clearly explained, reasonable. Rule number two. Never reward actions. Let's make it simple. Never reward an effort to see the boundary moved. Children, when you clearly explain the boundary, and they don't like a particular boundary, like going to bed at night, right? Others are there, right? Maybe they're maybe you're sitting around and you're you're having you know you know it's it's a winter night and you're before the fire and it's right and okay now it's getting late and the time for the little ones at least to go to bed. Right? I don't want to go to bed. It's fun being here. It's fun with the snacks or whatever. They don't feel like going to bed. So what do they do? Right? They try to get you to move the boundary. Right? They manipulate. There are two kinds of manipulation. Right? There's the sour manipulation, whining, for example, crying, moping. Right? That's sour manipulation. Right? But the whole point is, maybe I can get them to let me stay a little bit longer, whatever. Right? And then there's sweet manipulation. Right? I love you, mommy. This was so nice, mommy. Can we stay longer, mommy? Right? And then the sweet sour. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, they mix them both. They mix them both. Right? So they're trying to get you to move the boundary. You don't want to move the boundary. Because, remember what we said earlier, the child is learning at every moment. If you move the boundary because the child manipulated you and made you feel sweet or whatever, or made you like, like back to little Mary, right, at the picnic, uh, that boundary could have, that was sour manipulation to the, you know, to the utmost. Right? A parent could have said, we're going to deal with this later young lady and let her do what she wanted. Chalk one up for little Mary. Right? Boundary has been moved. And what is the message that has been sent? What has the child learned? The child has learned... That when you can get around what you're told to do, do it. Authority must be obeyed only if one can't get around it somehow. 
the child has learned something. There's a bumper sticker, surely you've seen, I think it's a Mormon group that puts it out, out there, but this one's true. Right? And the bumper sticker simply says, when you scream at another driver, your child learns something. Right? It's very true, and it's this principle. Everything you do, your child is learning something. How to respond, how to act, what works, what doesn't work, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. So everything that you do with your child is training him, consciously or unconsciously, mostly unconsciously. Right? And that's why it's so good, even though we know these things. I don't think I'm telling anybody anything new. We know these things, and yet at the same time, it's very good sometimes to step back and just think about them. Because we see that we don't follow them in reality, at least at times. Right? At least at times. One more. Rule number three. When you, when you speak, when you command, expect to be obeyed the first time. The first time and every time. So expect it the first time you say it, and every time you say it. Let's look at that a little bit. Firstly, we need to expect to be obeyed. It's a question of believing in the authority that you have from God. Right? Real authority is a reflection of God's authority. And it was given you, not for you, but for the good of your child. It's an authority that you are meant to use for the good of your child. You have the right to use that authority. You have more than a right. You have an obligation to use that authority. When you speak, expect to be obeyed. The first time that you speak. Now, there's something, firstly, realize. Children, you have to have their attention Right? And little ones, very often you won't. And that's why they don't respond. Make sure you have their attention. It's not a question of, and I was just visiting a class last week, a kindergarten class, and the teacher who does a very nice job, actually, but she was making a mistake. Right? Very often she was t talking to the kids, telling them to do something when she was going to her desk to get something, or she had turned her back and was walking across the room to go do something. Right? And so she didn't have their attention when she commanded. It was natural that they didn't follow. They're little kindergartners, right? With little kindergartners, you need to make sure you have their attention and you're very precise in what you want. Now, you realize, sorry, you realize, Johnny, you realize, okay, Johnny, so I want you to get in your desk now and get out the red book for spelling, right? And put that book over there on the table and sit down. I'll be right with you. And so you have the attention is there. The focus is there. You know he hears you. You are very precise, clear boundary, clear line, right? But so that when you say first time, make sure he, he's heard you the first time. Right? As I, I talked to that teacher afterwards, she wasn't doing that and they weren't obeying. I said to her, look, you are diminishing your authority. Every time you tell them to do something and they're just sort of half there and not hearing it, they're making you repeat. Your voice and your command diminishes in its value. The same is true and even more so when you command 
but don't expect them to respond or they don't respond and you don't do anything about it. Or you repeat it four times, five times, until finally you get angry. So, Johnny, get your red book out and go over and put it on that table there. Sit down and I'll be right with you. Nothing happens. Johnny, what did I say? Starts to move towards the desk. A little bit. Turn away. Turn back. There he is, still coloring. Johnny, get your red book out. So this time the desk opens. He pulls out his red book. He puts it up on top. I go back to the now the teacher blows his top, his, his top, right, and yells at the child, and the child grabs his book and goes to sit down. What's happened? What's happened is the child discerned when the teacher really meant it. In other words, when he was going to do something about it if the child didn't comply. It's not anger that pushed the child to do what he did, to actually obey. In fact, it was the threat of action. Many, many a parent yells all day long and is angry all day long and the kids, because anger doesn't push a child. Only the threat of action does. Much better to never get to the anger level. Much better for the child to know immediately, you mean it. Johnny, get your red book out and go over to the desk and I'll be right with you. Johnny doesn't move. Teacher walks up to Johnny, pulls the drawer out, hands the red book to Johnny, says now over to the desk. I really apologize, but I need an actor, right? I need an actor, all right? So you see what I'm saying, right? Immediately there, the authority figure moved to action. Didn't yell and scream, didn't jump up and down, just made it clear, I said... Screaming does nothing. Screaming means nothing. Action moves. So the action needs to follow the first time. Yes. Now, you going over there and getting his book out for him, basically doing for him what he was told to do, that's not a problem in itself. No, because the action was much more than just opening his desk. Right? It, all you did was start the action with him. And if he doesn't follow with you for the action now, he knows you're going to do something. He doesn't know what it is. Right? He doesn't know what it is. But you would get the book out for him and get him yeah, all I, that stuff. I, I wouldn't actually do the whole thing for him, that's for sure. No, all you're doing is starting the process. Right? In other words, without wasting your words and repeating what you said, you're telling him again. You're putting him on the path. But you wouldn't do that day after day either. Oh, well, you wouldn't simply do it that way. Next time there would be a little bit stronger response. Yeah, sure. Sure, Absolutely. So the first time, so when you speak, expect to be obeyed. The first time and every time. This question of consistency is absolutely critical. Most parents will enforce what they've said 70% of the time or 80% of the time. 
but most parents will not enforce what they've said every time. There's a writer, a child psychologist out there, um, John Rosman, and I believe it was him. He's got a number of books, but I believe it was him who said that children are gamblers. You ever go to Vegas? You see people with those slot machines, right? Put a quarter in, shoom, nothing. Quarter in, shoom, nothing. Quarter in, shoom, nothing. Quarter in, shoom, ding, 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 ding. They're there the rest of the day. Quarter in, shoom, nothing. Quarter in, shoom, nothing. Quarter in, shoom, nothing. Why? Because it worked once. And it's likely to work again sometime. And that's it. Right? Another analogy that you'll often you'll often read in a in a child raising children book, right, is the whole fence thing. Right? If you think of a boundary, right? Here we are a boundary, think of a boundary for sheep. Right? You put a fence up. Right? And then you put a fence this one here, 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 all the way around. Gosh, I ran out of fence. We'll leave this side open, but they'll be okay. Most of the boundaries are there. What's gonna happen? <laughs> Straight through the opening, and out they go. It's the same way with children. Right? When there's a hole in the fence, they'll find it. And once they find it, or they think the hole is going to be there, they're going to keep looking for it. Put them back in, mend the fence, and they're going to spend all their time looking for that boundary, that opening. Right? And if you, because you don't enforce a boundary, let them through, you affirm, you teach them, all we got to do is keep looking. So the consistency right, is really the key. To be consistent. It's so, so critically important. Um, you know, a lot of times a parent will say to me, you know, I'm afraid of being too strict, or I'm afraid of being maybe a little bit lax, or Where, where's the boundary at? What should I be doing? I often tell them, you know what? You might be a little harsh, a little bit too strict, I mean. Or you might be a little bit lax. But what really matters is that you're consistent. When you ask something of them, you follow through. Right? You follow through. That's why it's so important to not ask what you're not willing to back. Which doesn't mean that much to you. So that you're going to, to back it. Right? It's better not to ask at all. Uh, Johnny's playing with something and you're not going to follow up. You don't really want to play with it, but if you're not going to follow up, better just let him play with it. Uh, better that than to say, Johnny put that away and he doesn't and he keeps right on playing and he heard you and much, well, then much better to not say anything. Alright? Much better. So this consistency is really a key and I have talked one hour on the dot and that is plenty long. Right, so we will stop there. Right, and we will pick up then after lunch. And then we'll finish this initial part of the discipline. And then I'll give you the opportunity to fire questions at me. Okay, so let's uh, say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and it shall be all the day. Sorrowful and immaculate heart of Mary, St. Pius X, St. Michael, pray for us. in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.